I don't think it's any secret my position on the Bible. Well, really, our position on the Bible. I believe the Bible is inerrant. Uh, in its in its original in, in the originals, it is inerrant. It, it is infallible. It is inspired. I believe I, I hold to what's called verbal plenary inspiration. I believe the Bible is inspired. All of it is inspired, and even to the very words is it inspired. And this this recognizes obviously textual variants and so forth. That's why we always say in the originals. I believe my Bible. Um, so therefore, I believe I I I know that the Bible the Bible states that there is no God. I believe that. Um, you don't believe that? Well, turn to Psalm 14.1. Julie, skeptic. The Bible states there is no God. Psalm 14.1. Someone read Psalm 14.1. We're a smaller group this morning. so we Psalm 14.1. Well, no, let me read it. There is no God. Oh, wait a minute. Psalm 53. I don't know about what Bible you have, but Psalm 53 one says there is no God. Right? (laughs) Obviously. Did I did I scare you there for a second this morning? Why? Why do we not take Psalm 14 one and say the Bible says there is no God? First of all, does does the Bible say that? Yes. We just read it. But does the Bible mean that? No. How do we know what the meaning is? Context. Let's assume for a moment that Psalm 14.1 didn't say, the fool says in his heart. Let's say that Psalm 14 says, there is no God. Would we therefore believe it? No, why not? Right. The rest of the, the, the vast that we call the analogy of faith, Scripture interpreting Scripture. We would interpret, we would scratch our heads and go, wait a minute, that's completely opposite of everything else the Bible teaches, so I'm not going to believe that. So I, there must be some other explanation. So we, whenever we interpret the Bible, we have to interpret the Bible in, in context, and we have to interpret it with the, what's called the analogy of faith in mind. In other words, uh, we hold to the fact that Scripture interprets Scripture, that Scripture will not contradict other Scripture. And we know this because of the nature of God's Word. It's inspired. We, God doesn't make errors. God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't, he doesn't deal in contradictions. So the very nature of Scripture, we hold to the fact that the Bible doesn't contradict itself. And by the way, most of the time when people say the Bible contradicts itself, it's not a, it's not a, technically it's not a contradiction. Um, but in any event, and then, and then uh, we know that, that the Bible was written primarily to be understood. It is simple, and it's easily understood. It, it's what theologians call the perspicuity of Scripture, that by and large the Scripture is an ordinary person can read it and understand it. We don't need a pope. We don't need a priest. We don't need a, a guru to tell us what it means. We can read it as written for us to be read and understand. And yet, Peter himself said in, in First or Second Peter, he says, Paul has written some things that admittedly are hard to understand. So when we say that the Bible, it, it, by and large, is, is simple and easy to read and to understand and to interpret, that doesn't therefore mean that there are certain sections that are much more difficult to interpret, much more difficult to understand. And the analogy of faith says what we do, therefore, in those cases, is we take those, 
those texts and those verses and those passages that are clear that we can understand, and we take those pa- the passages that are unclear or difficult to understand, and we bring them to the clear passages, and we interpret them based on the clear. So that's that. That is these are this is basic hermeneutics. This is what you you learn in first year hermeneutics in seminary, and hopefully you'll learn in our church. Context analogy of faith. Uh, we always take those things that, that, that seem to not sound right or seem to go against what uh, Scripture seems to be saying and, and rather than change what the rest of Scripture says to, uh, to, to be consistent with those texts, we bring those to the larger text. And as I've often said, there, there may be some cases in which we may not be able to get, we may not feel comfortable we've arrived at the interpretation of what this verse really means, but we can certainly know what it can't mean. Fair enough? All right, um, here's a key question that I want us to, to, to keep in mind at all times. Whenever anybody says anything or makes a claim or makes a doctrinal claim, is I want us to think at BCV. B, as in boy, Beta Charles Victor. Bravo, Char- what is it? Bravo Charlie Victor. Book, chapter, verse. And you might want to add C to the end, BCCV or BCVC, context. We, we understand context. So if someone, someone makes a doctrinal claim, we simply, well, book, chapter, verse. Where do you get that? When we come to baptismal regeneration, and when, they, when, when those who hold the baptismal regeneration say, well, you have to be water baptized in order to be saved, what do we say? Book, chapter, verse. Last week, in fact, honey, uh, would you put that, that slide, that it, it says sermon slides, would you put that back up? We're just going to need to leave it up because we're going to refer to it here in a minute. I forgot to tell you that. Or at, not tell you, ask you. Uh, <laughs> that was a slip. <laughs> we, we, there, there are five basic verses that those who hold the baptismal generation will put forth as, as book, chapter, verse. And we dealt with two of those. We dealt with Mark 16, 16. We talked about uh, that the fact that this is, this is a highly questionable text and that it is, at the very, uh, very outset, it's, it's, it's very unwise to build any kind of major doctrine in that section. But even if we did, we, we talked about the, 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 uh, the logical fallacy of negative, it, uh, uh, negative uh, my mind. See, it's the flu. I've got the run for your lives. Negative inf- inference, that if we state, if we state the positive, yeah, you can just leave that up. Thank you, honey. If we state a, you, you state a positive, the, the, opposite is not, the opposite is not necessarily true. I don't know what this is. The opposite is not necessarily true. Uh, it also applied to, for instance, I gave the example of um, all, do- all, dogs who have, all animals who have brown spots are, and are dogs. Does it mean that if it doesn't have brown spot, it's not a dog? No. Uh, I gave an example of everyone who believes and lives in Colorado will go to heaven. Does the, does the opposite, if you don't live in Colorado, you don't go to heaven? No, it's just simply saying whoever believes and lives in Colorado will go to heaven. Uh, Matthew 16 is, is basically that because it says um, who he or does not believe is condemned. He doesn't say whoever, whoever does not believe and does not, is not baptized is condemned. We also looked at Titus 3.5. Was it one of the five that they give? Titus 3.5 does not talk about baptism. 
you have to read that into washing. You have to assume that washing means baptism. We talked about that. So what we ended up with, and what we're going to look at today, is really the big three. And these are legitimate verses that we have to deal with. Um, unlike, I believe, Mark, uh, Mark 16 and Titus 3, 5, these are three verses that talk about baptism. And at first reading would, would seem to be, teach that, that we have to be baptized in order to be saved. So let's turn to the first one, and that's Acts 2.38. What is Acts 2? Let's let's establish a context for it. What's going on in Acts chapter 2? Yeah, we have Pentecost, first of all. And and, and at at Pentecost, this is Peter's first great sermon. So this is part of Peter's first great sermon at Pentecost. Let's start in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So first of all, whenever we deal with Acts 2.38, we need to deal with all of the context, which includes verse 41, saying, so those who believe, or those who received his word were baptized. How do we respond to Acts 2.38? Is, in fact, Acts 2.38 talking about uh, saying that there is no God, in essence? Is it saying you have to be water baptized to be saved? Well, the first thing we need to do is we need to go to the analogy of faith. And let's, let's assume, for the sake of argument, that that's exactly what it means. That, or that, that's exactly what it's saying. You have to be water baptized to be saved. The first thing we do is we go to analogy of faith. You say, do I, how should I respond? Do I have to, do I have to, if that says I have to be baptized to be saved, and all these do not mention baptism at all, do I have to somehow now try to figure out how all of these explain how all of these have left baptism out? In other words, do I make these consistent with that? Or do I make that consistent with these? That's what an analogy of faith says. Um, so, so that's where we would start. But I would argue that 238 does not, in fact, uh, teach that water baptism is necessary for salvation. The key here is this preposition for. Look with me at verse 38 again. It said, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, the Greek preposition for is very fluid, as it is in English. There are three primary uses of this preposition. The first use is uh, we use this preposition for to, to, to indicate in order to be or to get or to have. So we use the, even in English, this is Greek, the English is the same way. For instance, if I was to say, I went downstairs for a sandwich, what am I saying? I went to go get a sandwich. So one option for Acts 2.38 is 
repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, in order to receive your forgiveness of sins. So that's one option. The first option is in order to get. There is, a, there is the second meaning of this preposition is because of or result of. Um, Sal came up to me, comes up to me and says, man, I, I have a headache. I have a really bad headache. And I said, Sal, you need to take an aspirin for a headache. You need to take an aspirin for your headache. What have I just said? How is for being used there? Am I saying, go, get, go take an aspirin in order to get a headache? What am I saying? Because you already have one, because you have a headache, take an aspirin. So we, in even English, this preposition is used that way often. Take an aspirin for your headache. It's not in order to get a headache. It's because you already have one. So because of or as a result of. The, the the third primary meaning of this preposition, both in Greek and English, is, is with regard to. Um, if I was to say, uh, the man was sentenced to life in prison for murder. Was he sentenced to life in prison in order to get murder? In order to receive murder? Um, it could be uh, the second one, because he already had murdered. But this more has more of, a, more of the, the, the notion of, with regard, with regard to his, his crime, he has been sentenced to life. So at the very outset, to say that verse, chapter 2, verse 38, absolutely, dogmatically, means that the, the, the preposition means in order, to receive that, in order to receive salvation, you can't say that. So at the very least, all we have to say is it can be one of three things. It can be in order to get baptism, in order to receive forgiveness, or it can mean because you have already been forgiven, or it could be with regard to forgiveness. That's all we can say. So, to be fair, even those of us who hold to believers' baptism, who deny baptism, we can't categorically, dogmatically say it means, just this text, it means because you've already been forgiven. Because a preposition can be, these are three primary ways it can be used. All we can say right now is, it can, it's probably one of these three. So what do we do? Do we, do we just guess? <laughs> do we say, well, my tradition, I follow my tradition. Well, no, how do we decide on which one is probable? Which use of this preposition is probable? Um, is there any other grammar that would indicate maybe um, which one is more probable, which use of this preposition is more probable. Well, it's interesting. Greek is what we call an inflected language. In other words, English, parts of, parts of speech in English are determined by their place in the sentence. Greek is not like that. Um, Greek can put verbs participles and subjects and direct objects, any place in the sentence that you want because of the design of the language and the, the suffixes and, and, and how it's, how it's what we call inflected. In other words, all the parts of speech for that word are built into that word. So, for instance, in Greek, if they wanted to emphasize something, they'd put that word at the very beginning of the sentence because that was before we had highlighters and 
bold and underlined or big cap. So that's how they would, they, they would put it. And it. But it would still function in the sentence that the word designated. So you could put a direct object at the very beginning of the sentence. Or you could begin to put a verb before the subject. So if we look at the grammar, this is what's interesting to me. Um, and, and we talk about parts of speech. We're talking about things like gender, number, um, but primarily gender and number. Let, let's, let's just go with that. So if we were to look up these words, here's what you'd find. Um, repent is a second person imperative. And what's an imperative? Command. It's a command. So, but it's second person plural. Is there, oh, by the way, the way that Greek links words, because they can be used any place in the sentence, the way they, they connect and link words is primarily through gender. Uh, gender and number. So it, it, you could have a definite article for a, for a noun here and have the noun way over here and words in between, and you connect them because of gender and number. So having said that, repent is a second plural Imperative. Forgiveness of your sins. Anybody know what that is? Second person plural. So what, grammatically, what two terms go together? The two second person plurals. So repent and forgiveness of your sins go together. They modify each other. They, that's who, for lack of a better word, they go together. Now, here's what's fascinating. Be baptized is third-person singular imperative. So it's a command. We're commanded to be baptized. We're going to talk about this when we talk about believer's baptism because oftentimes those who hold the baptism of regeneration claim that we don't hold baptism enough importance. Now, the Bible says that baptism is vitally and crucially important, but not for our salvation. So let me, let me say this again. Be baptized is third-person, third-singular imperative, each one, you look here, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, or each one of you, is singular. Now, it doesn't have gender because it's an adjective. So what does that mean? He is saying, you could put, repent for the forgiveness of your sins, be baptized, every one of you, and then modified in the name of Jesus Christ. So grammatically, we, we, we can determine... In addition to, we can rule out those other two uses of four when he's saying repentance or baptism doesn't go with the forgiveness of your sins because they are, they, they are, they are different gender and different numbers. So here, here's what, here's what uh, grammatically we could read this as. Repent, parentheses, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and parentheses, for the forgiveness of your sins. So repent for the forgiveness of your sins and be baptized, everyone, in the name of Jesus Christ. Just grammatically. That's why it's crucial that we look at other factors rather than just the preposition. So, grammatically, repentance and forgiveness of sins go together. They are the same person, number, gender. Be baptized, every one of you is... Same person, number, gender. They go together. Number three, or, or I guess number two, is context. Look at me at chapter 3, verse 19. 
Peter, this is his second sermon. He's in Solomon's portico. Verse 17, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled, or all that he was, I mean, by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Verse 19, Repent, therefore, and be baptized. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Repent, therefore, and what? Turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Where's baptism? Now, the argument could be made, well, he's already said baptism. He's already said baptism in verse 38. Yeah, but he also said repent in verse 38. He repeats it here. Why didn't he repeat baptism? Yeah. The third thing is, obviously, we always, we always fall back on analogy of faith. So I would submit to us and submit to you that while the preposition for is fluid and has a variety of meanings, that we would opt for uh, repent because of the forgiveness of your sins, because of the grammar, person, number, gender, because of the context, verse chapter 3, verse 19, and obviously the, the, the analogy of faith. Again, at, at, at the very worst, all we could say is we're not sure because the Greek preposition for the forgiveness of your sins can be used in one of three ways. Unless you have some other way of breaking the tie, um, that's the most we can say. But again, based on the grammar, based on the context, analogy of faith, I, I think it fails uh, to, to, to show what they say it shows. Acts 22 is the second one. Acts 22:16. We'll start in verse 12. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise. And be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. What's the context of chapter 22? Paul is basically sharing his testimony. Um, and he's, he's recounting the events that we have recorded in Acts chapter 9. Um, if you go back to Acts chapter 9, verse 17... God has already appeared to Ananias and told him to go to Paul. Verse 17, And Ananias departed to enter the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. This is what Paul is referring back to. So the question is, did, does the text say that he, baptism was required or baptism was necessary for Paul's salvation? Let's just start there. Does Acts chapter 9 say that his baptism saved him? We can read it again. 
Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Is there, is there anything in there even remotely talking about baptism saving him? No. So let's go back to Acts 22 then. Because now Paul adds something that Acts 9, apparently Luke in Acts 9, did not tell us. And that is, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Um, What do we do with this? Um, Context. That's where we start, right? Context. Context. Look with me at, at Acts 26, because this is another time he's sharing his testimony. In Acts 26, verse 20, or verse 12, I mean. He's before King Agrippa, and he, he, he's referring back to Acts chapter 9 again. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things which you have seen, uh, in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Acts, now turn to Acts chapter 20, verse 21. And as you know, we'll start in verse 20. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks. This is what Paul preached. What was it? Repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He did not preach repentance and faith and water baptism. It wasn't mentioned in chapter 26, verse 20. It's only, it was only mentioned in 22, 16. So again, is there? how do we explain that? Well, again, we look at the grammar. If you go to Acts 22, 16, once again, the grammar tells us what goes together. Arise, he says, arise, which is a participle. It's not an imperative. It's not a command. It's a a participle. Be baptized is a command. Washing is a command. And calling is a participle. So, what do participles do? They modify main verbs. So, if we were to read this, by the way, the and, when it says rise and be baptized, that and is not in the Greek text. Most of our translators have added it, and why they did, I don't know. 
it, the, the, by the way, the, the new NIV does not have the and in there. Um, it says, arise, be baptized. So what goes together? What This participle arise, what does it modify? What's right next to it? We call it an antecedent. Baptized. Arise, be baptized. What's the next imperative? The next imperative is wash. And the participle is calling. So what does calling go with? What's the closest to calling? What's the closest verb to calling? Wash. So what do we have? We have rising and being baptized, washing away your sins by calling on his name. Now, we can't translate it that way because that's so woodenly literal. <laughs> so we, we have to make it into good English, but Greek, Greek tells us what goes with what. So the participle arise goes with the imperative to be baptized, and the, the, the participle calling goes with the command to be washed. Arise, baptized, wash away by calling. That's, that's, I believe, a reasonable argument to rule out that this does not, in fact, teach that baptism is there for salvation. And so I guess what I would ask is that someone who, anyone who held to baptism regeneration, will you explain to me why it does? Grammatically and contextually, explain to me why this verse teaches you must be water baptized to be saved. I've given my, my, uh, my best shot. One last one, 1 Peter 3. Admittedly, this one, I think, personally, is the one that's most difficult and most confusing. But not just for those who deny baptism regeneration, but for any and everyone. This is just simply a very difficult text to, to interpret. We'll start in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, as a, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, how do we approach this text? Well, let's look, first of all, at what it actually says and what it does not say. Um, verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this. Now, what's our first question? What is this? What is this referring to? Well, look at it. See, give it your best shot. What do you think when he says, baptism which corresponds to this? It usually, usually when you have um, a, a, a pronoun a, a, like this, this, it's a, near, it's a near demonstrative. What is the closest thing to it? That's probably what it's referring to. 
it's not going to skip over three things and refer to something. So what is the this? The this is what? Eight persons brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this. So the this is probably, well, undoubtedly, the, the statement that eight persons were brought safely through water. Baptism corresponds to that. But it doesn't say, by the way, did the eight people in the ark go into the water? Does it say that the eight persons were saved, were brought safely in the water? No, it's through the water. Did they get wet in any way? (laughs) Even if you hold a sprinkling, did they get wet in any way? Might have, a little bit of rain on them, so maybe the Presbyterians would have an argument here, you know, maybe they got sprinkled on. It, it, it is a difficult phrase. They were, they were brought safely through the water. If we remember the flood, what happened? God told Noah to do what? Build a boat. They got, it started raining, so maybe, you know, they got a little wet. They got in the boat, and what happened? He, he, clo- he closed the door, and everybody else was wiped out. But those who were in the boat were saved. Not those who were in the water. Those who were in the water, everyone else. Yeah, it's kind of reverse Unbelievers' baptism. <laughs> uh, guys, I, I'm just saying, this is a very, very difficult text. I'm not trying to be flippant or make fun of anyone. This is a very difficult text. In fact, I would submit, in fact, um, well, well, let, let me finish here. So the this is they were brought through the water, and, and, and having read the, the, the flood, through the water meant they were kept safe from God's judgment, um, which the water was a source of. But he says baptism corresponds to that. How does baptism correspond to that? Because he says, the baptism, what now saves you. Did the water save them in any way? I'm talking about the original flood. No. Here's my best shot. And again, admittedly, this this text is the hardest for me to, quite frankly, to, to interpret on many different levels, not just in baptism. I think that what he's saying is this. Because he used this word corresponding or signified, sign, type. That what, what the ark and the flood represents, baptism represents. He's, in other words, he's comparing what they represented, not the literal things themselves. So, so it's not literal water. It is what the water represented. What the ark and the water symbolized, baptism now symbolizes. In other words, what really saved, who or what really saved Noah from God's judgment? The boat, for sure. That was like, yeah, we know that. Why did he build a boat? Because God told him, and what did he do? He believed God. Ultimately, what saved Noah and his children? 
he believed God's word. And those waters were just a symbol of that. That would be my argument. But again, like I said, we could uh, maybe other arguments could be made. Um, I, I think, though, one last thing in terms of context, I think verse 21b, he said, uh, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think he's, he's literally says, and I don't mean real water. This one I'm not as certain about in terms of my, my exegesis, because this is just difficult. Pastor, because you've got to talk about who are the ones that are in prison and all those different kinds of things. So I admit, this one is problematic for me. And this is what I, I, I simply appeal to, analogy of faith. Well, guys, in wrapping up, is, is this just a tempest in a teapot, so to speak? Is this... Is this just, are we making mountains out of a molehill here? Uh, is, this, is this just a, a minor denominational disagreement? Um, is this kind of like, uh, you know, we disagree over, you know, whether, he's gonna, whether there's going to be a, 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 a tribula- literal seven-year tribulation? Is, is, it, is it on that par? You know, we, you know, teach his own. We just, we just, this is an in-house debate. Um, th- this is where maybe uh, some of you may, not like you've disagreed up to this point. But listen, we're, we're dealing with this issue. We're, we're dealing with the very heart of what saves us or what doesn't save us. Those who hold the baptism of regeneration say that water baptism is absolutely necessary. Whatever else is necessary, water baptism is absolutely necessary to be saved. We believe the Bible does not teach that, and I hope we've at least demonstrated that to some degree this morning. We both can't be right. One of us is wrong. I guess logically we could both be wrong. There could be some other scheme that God has that he hasn't revealed to us. But based on what God has revealed to us in his word, one of us is wrong. Either the baptismal regeneration people are wrong, or we are wrong. Because we are dealing with what saves or what doesn't save, what are the ramifications in this case of being wrong? One is the gospel, one isn't. And by the way, if you feel I'm being uncharitable, um, read some of what, for instance, the, what Catholics and Lutherans say about us. They do not believe we're saved. You know what? They get it. They got it right. This this is that this is that important. This is the difference between a true gospel or a false gospel. This is not a tempest in a teapot. This is not a minor denominational debate or. De- this is, gets at the very heart, guys, of what saves us. This gets at the very heart of the Protestant Reformation. Search the scriptures. Which view best comports with the scripture? Is it this? Or is it that? Or what that seems to teach. Again, I, I, I confess, First Peter 3 is problematic for me. 
But let's assume that 1 Peter 3 says exactly what it seems to be saying. Am I to say that that one verse, how I understand that one verse, that's the right way, and all these are not the right way? You see the problem. Guys, this is important. Um, in fact, I, I was talking to Colin, um, and, and, and I'm not picking on Lutheran just because I know I know more Lutherans than I do Roman Catholics or Church of Christ people. And, and what, what Lutherans are now seen to be saying is, well, we're, we're, we will live with the apparent contradiction. We're willing to live with, with this apparent contradiction. We're going to affirm both. We're not going to try to explain it. I mean, I suppose that's one way to do it. Um, I think it's I think it's too important, too dangerous of an issue to do that, though. Uh, Paul's very clear in Galatians. We know that there are false gospels. We know that there are true gospels. There's a true gospel. Um, next week we're going to look at baptism again, though. From it's one thing to say what it isn't. It's easy, uh, they're wrong, they're wrong. Well, what, what does the Bible teach about baptism? Because that's what we're going to deal with next week. But, but here's, my, here's my point, guys. We have, this, is, this is vitally important. And while maybe any given particular church or denomination, maybe they've got some kind of nuance worked out, what do they preach and teach in terms of a gospel to new converts? If they say to new converts, you must be water baptized to be saved, that is a false gospel that does not save. I don't know any other way around it. I'm trying to say it as charitably as I can. That's not the true gospel. Otherwise, we say, well, they, they really love Jesus. They, they really believe in Jesus. I mean, when you start adding anything, it's the proverbial camel's nose is in the tent. And, and, and eventually, and this is what we've seen in mainline denominationalism, by the way. Once that camel's nose got in the tent, uh, it, it led to just rank liberalism. You ultimately have to, to decide what, what, the, what the biblical evidence seems to suggest. If you'd like me to send these verses to you, I can. Um, uh, in, in fact, it's vital that you don't just take my word for it. Read these verses. Read these texts. Search the scriptures. Um, but just understand that this is not just a minor disagreement. Um, this has uh, eternal consequences. I, I'm not saying that everyone who holds to your term, baptism regeneration is not a Christian. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying if we preach that gospel, those people cannot be saved by saying you have to be water baptized. Just please stand. Here's what we're going to do. We're not going to join hands. I think that that is a reasonable compromise. Unless, of course, you're married. <laughs> Uh, so let's stand and let's let's sing together.